This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Previously on Colors. The Biden administration wants to reunite migrant families that were separated at the U.S.-Mexico border, but it may be easier said than done. Not just because finding the, the parents, but sometimes uh, the parents will not want to reunite because of fear that uh, they may end up, you know, both of them back in, in Guatemala, Honduras, or, or, or whatever country. Coming up in this episode of Colors. I am a Korean adoptee who was raised and currently live in Harleysville, Pennsylvania, a suburb of Philadelphia. I grew up in a white family in a very white community. I have two sisters, but I was the only one who was adopted. While I didn't have many issues with this growing up, recently I allowed myself to recognize that both of my sisters married racist men. Katie Musselman, a Colors listener, opens up about the painful prospect of racism within a family. This is sad and disorienting and has led me to really question what my sisters thought of me and the true nature of our relationships. That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Three, two, one. Chris Core and I'm white. I'm JJ Green and I'm black. And this is Colors. Well, Chris, again, we have another interesting program today. Katie Musselman. She's one of the people that listens uh, to Colors on a regular basis. And Katie has a very interesting story to tell us about her life. And that story starts with the fact that she was adopted and that she recently discovered that there was something very interesting about her adopted family that she perhaps hadn't realized before. So without spoiling this story, I'm going to let Katie tell it and uh, introduce you by saying thank you, Katie, for joining us. Would you please tell us your story? Well, thank you for having me and being open to sharing this. Um, as you said, I was adopted at the age of three months old from South Korea. I grew up in a white family. I had two sisters, um, both who are are white. I was the only one who was adopted. The neighborhood that I grew up in and that I currently live in is one in the same. And it is, it is, like I said, a predominantly white community. And growing up, this, my racial identity and um, kind of looking very different from everyone in my family and in the community didn't cause me many issues or many problems. But as I got older and my sisters and I both developed relationships with people, um, I, I came to realize that some of the rhetoric that was coming from their spouses was something that 
I didn't agree with at all. And in fact, it wasn't hateful necessarily directly towards me, but towards people who didn't look like them. And this has become more and more apparent in probably the past few years where their comfort with sharing controversial and hate-filled rhetoric is just growing. And it's I can't keep the blinders on anymore and tell myself that it's anything but racism. Well, Katie, that is very brave of you to share your story with us. And I want to thank you again for doing this. And I was going to ask you originally um, what led you to believe these people were racist. But you said some of the things they said, their rhetoric. Um, But I'm going to ask you if you would be more specific, if you can, about situations uh, that you may remember that uh, sort of uh, moment when when the light came on. Absolutely. There's there's two specifically with one of my brother-in-laws um, where he was applying for a job. And part of the process was that my sister also had to be interviewed for that. And she shared with me that one of the questions she was asked is, does your husband have any racist, racist or prejudiced beliefs? And she kind of chuckled and said, so I told them no, because he wouldn't have gotten the job if I told them the truth. And I can just remember feeling very shocked and but also just frozen and, and thinking, how is that OK for you, but not spitting out the words? And the second that just really sticks with me is um, my husband and I have three children, two biological and one who is adopted. And I had shared with my sister before we adopted our son that we were open to adopting any ethnicity, any race. We were going to let the birth parents decide if we were appropriate. And she looked at me and said, well, my husband won't like it if you adopt a black child. Oh. Oh, my gosh. And lo and behold, we have a black child who he's he's ours. There's no doubt about it. Is your family aware of the fact that you're going public with this? They are not. No. Um, The pandemic has changed the way in which we all socialize. So we haven't had time to really have talks like this and to really dig in deep with stuff like this because of differing levels of comfort with with gathering um so no they don't and i i understand the the trickiness to that in that is that am i doing things in the right order well the reason i i I mentioned that this is not a, an advice column, and <laughs> but it, it reads like one. Um, uh, so, be, you know, because you're saying something. I mean, it, it, it seems to me, and I'm, I'm a white guy from the Midwest, but it seems to me that when you confront people <clears throat> who are bullies or, in this case, they're, they're bigots, and you say to them something like, I'm not going to tell you how to phrase it, it's your family. But something like, you know, when you say things like that, that hurts my feelings because, you know, I'm of a different race than you and I can't help but take it personally. Is it your intention to hurt my feelings? 
I have to think, and JJ, you can tell me if I'm right or wrong about this, but I'd have to think that would give them pause before they speak up again. Am I wrong? I honestly can't can't answer that at, at this point. But what I can say, though, is that for Katie to do this takes an awful lot of courage. And considering that these are two women that she grew up with and these are people that she's known a long time, there must be a reason why she's taking this route. And I don't think that route, as you again, you say this is not an advice column, but I just don't think it's I don't think it's the path of least resistance here. I think she's taking this path for a very specific reason. But I'll let Katie tell us why you've chosen this route. Well, it started out with just um, sharing my story with a colleague who who we have in common and her encouraging me to reach out about it. And my husband and I have talked at length, going back and forth about whether conversations with my family would yield any results. And at this point, we're concerned that their patterns of behavior just give us reasonable cause to believe that they would dismiss our feelings. I've definitely discussed it with my mother. Um, and she's, I think, just at a loss as much as I am. And so my goal isn't to come here and say, can you two fix this? Because I know that that's not going to happen. But it is an isolating and disorienting feeling to know that you could grow up with two women who have known you since, you know, I've just always been a part of their lives. And to know that in their life, they could choose people who would abhor such horrible feelings toward other people who look like me or who look like my son. And that to me is, it's alarming. Like I said, it's very disorienting. It's sad. I think my goal is more to let people know. I've read recent articles about racism within a family Mm -hmm. and how that affects um, different people who marry into the family. And I found comfort in an odd way, in knowing that I'm not the only one experiencing this. And in all those articles I read, nobody was offering a solution. They were just sharing their story. Mm -hmm. And I think right now that that can be powerful. You know, the sharing piece of this, I believe, is indeed the solution. That may sound weird, but when you think about the options that are out there for people talking Two people that they know espouse these kinds of views and engage in this kind of behavior openly. And, you know, sometimes talking to people like that is you don't get through talking to them. Sometimes you have to share with others and others have to be a part of the solution. I don't know if that makes any sense to either of you, but that's the way I see this. Chris? Mm-hmm. Well, I, how old are your, is it both brothers-in-law? It's not just one that have this um, problem? It's, to an extent, it's both. One is much more uh, adamant in his views and more comfortable sharing them. So I, he's in his mid-40s, and my other brother-in-law is um, about 40. And how old is your, your little boy that you adopted who's black? He's nine. Nine. Does he do anything with his uncles? 
Not especially not recently. And one of them lives in Florida. So and we're up in Pennsylvania, so we don't see them often at all. And the other one we we don't spend much time with. And it came down to, um, yeah, just a lot of differences in views and not necessarily feeling a great level of comfort in hanging out with them. Well, the reason I say that is because oftentimes people can paint uh, a group of, of people racially or whatever, religiously with a broad brush until they know the individuals Then they know the individuals and they like the individuals and they, and especially like a nine-year-old boy, you know, you, I don't know, go fishing, go for a boat ride, uh, whatever you do in Florida, that's fun to go for a bike ride, uh, take them out and play catch. I mean, that's just fun stuff. And pretty soon you're bonding and you're hanging out and you don't even think about it anymore. So that's, yeah. that's why on an individual basis that that might work better than trying to, you know, do it as a, as a big broad stroke. Chris, if I, can I jump in here, Katie, for a second? Yeah, God, yes. Yeah. So, you know, the, she's already said that her sister has told her, and I would argue perhaps her sister knows her husband better than anybody, that he wouldn't like if they adopted uh, an African-American child. So there is some risk there for I, I see this. There is some risk as an African-American there for putting her that she'd be putting her son in by trying to set up this kind of scenario. Um, I don't know, Katie. Well, let me let me just if I can give you an example and I don't want to make it too personal because I don't. But um, I have a, a very good friend who was um, born and grew up in the South. And I think there was a time in his life when it was just normal for him as a white guy to be to be bigoted. Didn't think twice about it. Just kind of that was the way it was. He's an older guy, grew up in the South. And then life happened. And um, one of his kids married a, a Korean woman. So his grandkids are Korean, half Korean. And his uh, other child uh, adopted a, a boy of color. And he I mean, it's changed his life. He doesn't even think about it anymore. They're just the, he you know, he loves him to death and plays with them and has fun. And it, and he even said to me, he said, you know, it's just so different from the way I grew up. And if I could even add that he has a, a child who is growing up now, but she's she's gay and she's going to get married. And he said and I said, did you ever think in your life that you would be thrilled and looking forward to this. And he said, nope, a lot has changed in my life. So that's that's where I'm coming from with that remark. Right. And I I appreciate um, the suggestion. And like I said, my husband and I have discussed this uh, a lot. And my hesitation with trying to set up different scenarios in which he's spending time with his uncles is that they I want to be clear, they have never mistreated him. They have never said anything rude or belligerent about him. But I also don't want to put him in the position of of becoming a token to them. Well, you know, because then my sister did follow up by saying, you know, well, if he doesn't act black, it might be okay. And so, of course, that opens up a whole other discussion. And, and, you know, I obviously disagree on so many levels with that statement. 
but I, I'm not really willing to let him be a token to them. Well, this is exactly. Yeah, I mean, I understand. That's when the fireworks would begin too. If you said, <laughs> yes, they said something yeah, like and this that. Is, I, I, I totally agree with you. This is, this is, I was sensing this early on in the conversation uh, when you said, you know, what your sister said about him, her husband, and how he would mm-hmm. react. I was sensing that. And, you know, that's exactly what this podcast is, why it exists, because there's no cookie cutter solution for any kind of problem that has to do with this, you know, race. Uh, and what we want to do is to look, help people look for solutions to, and ways in which they can engage. But, you know, sometimes not engaging is the best thing. Sometimes, you know, you have to keep your distance and and look for another way, look for another time. But I, I want to ask you this, Katie, um, how, how, how are you going to reconcile this with your sisters once this, you know, hits the airwaves and gets out there? <laughs> that's that's the question that my husband and I have been mulling over um, for quite some time now. And especially, like I said, during the past 10 months, we've had a lot of times and then uh, to to chat. But then additionally, the racial unrest that has just been heightened has prompted that. And I'm going to be honest, we're just not entirely sure. I think at some point um, I'm going to have to be a little more clear with my family and say, we're not comfortable exposing ourselves, but really more so our children to your attitudes and your rhetoric and we feel that we shouldn't spend a lot of time with you. And if we do, these things are off the table. We will not discuss them with you. And if they come up, we are leaving. Hmm. Can I ask a a, a question a little bit off uh, from just your family, but you in particular, there's, Mm -hmm. I told JJ that this is uh, particularly timely this week. I've been hearing more and more stories about um, attacks um, either verbally or even some cases, uh, some cases physically increasing attacks against Asian people in this country and mm-hmm. uh, apparently related to the to the pandemic. Um, have you experienced that? I have not. I honestly recently shared with a friend that in my life, I've never looked at a situation and said, I think I was mistreated because of my appearance. And he countered saying, it's probably happened. You probably didn't realize it. Um, But I honestly can't say I have been, you know, in the past 10 months or in my life that I can recall other than maybe some childhood teasing, um, which unfortunately sometimes is a part of life and they go for the low hanging fruit. I mean, the reason I bring that up is I'm just so. Uh, surprised that it is continuing now. I mean, we've all been living with this pandemic for almost a year. But why are you and, surprised, man? Why are you surprised? Well, because it seems like the the, the uh, I'm not I don't know who's ratcheting up more of the of the the bigotry. I mean, first of all, <laughs> it's it's just so stupid because uh, 
so if in fact the virus originated in Wuhan, China, then you're lumping all Asian people together, which right away is just ignorance. And and then it's as if it's their fault. It's just stupid. And I, I mean, I think we know where it came from, uh, that the inferences were made by a previous office holder, but he's no longer in office. And so I'm just sort of surprised. You're not surprised, JJ. No, no. And here's why, because this is not a light switch, this situation. I mean, Donald Trump is, is gone from office. And despite these ridiculous conspiracy theorists that, that think he's going to return triumphantly to Washington on March 4th and become the 19th inaugurated president since 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 1933 or something like that or 1833 or whatever, um, it's not going to happen. But there are people who know this who are still peddling and pushing this idea and there are vulnerable people vulnerable people out there who are falling prey to believing this and then there are other people out there who choose to believe it because of whatever reasons and in the process you have people that are just out there that have no real ability to differentiate between the truth and what's good and what's bad attacking asian people attacking black and brown people attacking other uh, attacking white people, attacking anybody, just attacking because of this. The the genie is out of the bottle, as Alfredo Corchado told us on our last episode uh, mm-hmm. when we were talking about uh, the Latinx community. The genie's out of the bottle. There is hate just spreading across the land again. And I just don't see people saying, OK, you know, Trump's gone, so now I can just go back to being who I was. Some people have embraced us fully. And back to Katie's situation, I have to wonder if any of this has to do with them perhaps listening to some of this rhetoric that was coming from the former president uh, and and some of the other people who were spouting this this hate openly around the nation and in, in the media. It absolutely does. And in regards to it becoming more of a conversation point between uh, my husband and I, it was due to some things that they were sharing on social media where I couldn't really ignore some of the red flags anymore with um, some, like I said, some of the rhetoric that they were sharing and touting and just insisting was true And I didn't ever engage on social media with stuff like that, but it was, it would give me pause to just look at it and glance at what they were believing and walk away going, oh, you're one of those people. And that encompasses so much and, and just trying to figure out how to reconcile that with our family. Well, let me ask you this, Katie. Well, uh, Chris, I, I, it was very nice of you to come on and brave of you to come on and say this public. I, I guess the question would be, are you going to send a copy of this podcast to your relatives? <laughs> and see what happens. I, well, that's no, up to you. There's there's we're not done yet. We've got more to cover. But um, if you want to go ahead and finish that thought, I have a couple of more questions I want to ask. No, no, that's okay. no, that's OK. I just I was just curious about uh, is that something you're considering, Katie? Hmm. I think that that would be a rather abrupt way to bring it up to them. Yeah. And so I think the better way would be to find, you know, if if they have a slip up in front of me to kind of gently say, I need you to explain that I'm not understanding. And then let that lead into something 
maybe a little more personal and a little more vulnerable on my part. Mm-hmm. That's a part of what I wanted to ask you is essentially what what are you going to do about this situation after today? Because, you know, this is a great thing you're doing because you're showing a lot of people that your pain, basically your vulnerability and but you're showing them your bravery and you're showing them exactly what we want people to, 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 to get from this is that you can share your story. You can do something good with it and perhaps improve someone else's situation. So I want to ask you, what, what do you plan to do? At this point, I need to keep conversing about it within my my family and we need to figure out the best way. Like we said, our contact has been limited due to uh, distance, but also due to the pandemic. So at this point, we do have a little bit of time, it feels, to really think about these things. And it is tricky because having a conversation like this with somebody who's less connected to me personally would feel a lot easier. But at this point, there's so much fear and hesitation in terms of if they're dismissive of my feelings, that is a deeply personal cut to me, to my son, to my entire family. And so it's it's deciding how to approach that with vulnerability, knowing that, like I said, based on patterns in the past with behaviors, I'm not optimistic that they'd be very receptive to what we say. And I hope that I'm extremely wrong in that way. Um, I'm sure it's going to have to come to a conversation at some point. It's a matter of how do I initiate that? Do I try to start the conversation or do I look for an organic opening at some point? So at this point, I honestly, I don't have a clear picture. And I think that that's okay because we're all still just trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you a quick follow-up question, you know, um, mm-hmm. to this, this, this uh, situation. Uh, and, um, you know, we've asked you a number of questions that we were thinking about, and you've given us the responses that we were looking or whatever responses you wanted to share. Mm-hmm. Um, but were there things that you had hoped to communicate during this podcast that we haven't asked you about? Were there questions we haven't asked you about that you think you have something you want to say to? Oh, wow. That's a really good question. No, I think, you know, I have, I just have so many questions about this situation and, you know, my biggest question for me is just how can two women who grew up with an Asian sister marry men who are racist. It just, it bewilders me. (laughs) And have you asked, have you asked them that question? I have not. I have not because for a while, I think I tried to ignore it or parse it off or kind of, well, you know, there, this is a good quality that they have. And so focus on that. But as especially as my children get older and we're learning more about racism and anti-racism, it's not an option to do that anymore. And um, my kids are going to start to understand more deeply some of the things uh, that 
that their aunts and uncles believe or share. And so it's just my kids getting older has brought it more to the forefront that this is this is not something we can just kind of put our head down and keep walking. We need to confront it. Well, good for you. And and there's usually another point in which I give the email address, but I'll do it here because if listeners are inspired by the story and have suggestions that they want to pass on to us to talk about on the air concerning exactly what Katie is going through, we can be reached at the colors podcast at gmail.com. Katie, thank you so much for, again, for being brave enough to do this. And I really mean that because You know, I want to sit here and talk to you for another couple of hours, but I recognize that we can't do that. Um, But maybe there will be an opportunity in the near future to talk some more about this. But, you know, it is, you, you know, I mean, people need to understand just how much guts it takes to do what it is that you're doing. After the mics are off and after the lights have been turned off and we're gone from the building today, this podcast is going to be out there. And it's going to be out there in perpetuity. Uh, and you have chosen to do this understanding that, you know, coming into this with full knowledge. So I can't say enough about how appreciative I am to you for doing this. And, uh, you know, I just want the best for you, your family and your, your children and everyone. So thank you again. Thank you for the opportunity to share this. And I hope that it helps people who might find themselves in similar situations to know that they're not the only one. You're listening to Colors. My name is Gretchen Soren. I'm African-American and I live in Springfield Center, New York. My mother was an elementary school teacher and my younger brother had an innate ability to draw. And I remember in the 1960s, my mother got him to draw the faces of famous African-Americans, Ida B. Wells, George Washington Carver, Charles Drew, Thurgood Marshall. He drew their faces on cardboard and we colored them and cut them out. And my mother used them during Black History Month at school to teach the kids in Newark, New Jersey about African-American history. I learned those stories too. And these were stories that I didn't learn at school. I didn't realize then that African-American history was American history. The United States that we live in today is a nation that we built together. Blacks and whites, Latinx people, immigrants. Black History Month is about expanding the American story to include all of the people who have made us who we are as a nation. And it's about understanding that the struggle of people of African descent for full equality in American society has pushed our country to live up to its stated ideals. And at times that's been tough. Democracies require vigilance and constant work. And those groups who keep civil rights and voting rights on the front burner help us to maintain our democracy. And I still have all those cardboard heads that my mother and brother made years ago. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Yeah, I think that is one of the best interviews that we've done um, with Katie, and because it was personal, and um, I'm still thinking it over. I'm. Uh, I, I, Can anyway, you imagine just, that? Yeah, I. I, I mean, imagine I was that. Brave to, brave to come on and talk about 
family business in front of, you know, in front of strangers. Yeah. Yeah. In front of strangers. So I don't know. This is either a really appropriate time to read this or, or an inappropriate time. And I, I don't I don't know which it is, but I guess we could use a little, something a little bit more upbeat. Uh, there's a guy named Shelby Steele. He's a fellow at the Hoover Institute in uh, at Stanford in California. Um, he's 75 years old and he's uh, he's black and he, he wrote a piece. And I'm just I just like to get your feedback on this because it relates to the things that we talk about every week. J.J. Uh, uh, Shelby Steele says the fact is that America has made more moral progress in the last 60 years regarding race than any nation, country or civilization in history. He describes the progress as miraculous. He was born in a deeply segregated America where every aspect of his life was racially calibrated. In 1946, when his mother showed up in a Chicago hospital in full labor, the nurse took her to the maternity ward. But when her husband arrived after parking the car, the nurses realized the baby was not going to be white. So they pushed her into the elevator and descended to the basement where the colored maternity ward was. This was where Mr. Steele and his identical twin brother were born. Mr. Steele encountered plenty of discrimination in his youth. He couldn't be a paper boy because they wouldn't let black kids ride a bike through white neighborhoods at 6 a.m. He couldn't be a caddy on a golf course. He couldn't wash dishes at a local restaurant. He couldn't work at J.C. Penney's. He couldn't go to the schools he wanted because they were all segregated. But he says, I still have segregation flashback when I walk into the lobby of a luxury hotel. When he was a kid, he wouldn't dream of crossing the threshold into such a place. But the point I'm making is I know what racism really is and what inequality is really like. And things are much better now than they were 60 years ago. So is he right? Have have we made in the last 60 years more progress in this country than any other nation, country, or civilization in history? Yeah, we have. But you know what? We've actually taken, in the last few years, the last four years, taken more steps backwards than any other nation out there. And this has a lot to do with what we were hearing about in our podcast conversation today with Katie Steele, uh, with, with, with Katie Musselman. Uh, you know, hateful rhetoric. There's been a resurgence in that hateful symbols resurgent in that hateful activities and engagements, a resurgence in that. Yeah, we've made a lot of progress, but we've also made a whole bunch of steps backwards. Um, and and the question is, OK, so we made that you say we made progress, but we've stepped back. Is that just because people who have always harbored these feelings fear more emboldened to express them now or because there's actually been a change in how they feel? I think it has to do primarily with with the reality that the environment's changed. Some people don't know how they feel. I mean, I know that may sound ridiculous. Some people may just kind of stumble through life, just go through life engaging and doing uh, what people around them say to do or what people around them do without really actually tapping into what they think or feel. And when situations come up, like the Capitol riot, you find a lot of people were just along for the ride and look what they got themselves into. You know, so... I think it's 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 a it's a hybrid. It's a mix of all of what you said. But the dangerous part about all of this right now is there are still people out there that are still bent on pushing the separation. People still not willing to embrace 
what John Lewis said and what Ernie Green told us in one of our earlier podcasts, Ernie Green being one of the Little Rock Nine, to go out and engage in good trouble, they're looking for opportunities to, to, to create bigger divides. That's just my view. Yeah. Uh, and I will tell you, I have put in a call to Mr. Steele to uh, try to get him to come on the podcast. And if somehow he hears about it, uh, the invitation is open. Mr. Steele, we'd love to have you come on and talk. I'm J.J. Green, and I'm black. I'm Chris Core, and I'm white. And this is Colors. Coming up in our next episode of Colors. Black farmers. Systemic racism really has uh, driven us out of business uh, across the board from uh, all the discrimination that we face at the hands of the United States uh, Department of Agriculture. Uh, At the turn of the century, there was uh, over a million black farm families uh, tilling about 20 million acres of land. And today we're down to uh, about four and a half million acres and 45,000 black farmers that make a living uh, are farming. Dr. John Boyd, founder of the National Black Farmers Association. And to him, this is the most important thing. Preserving the black farmer and fighting against the total extinction of black farmers. And he explains why this is one of the most critical times for black farmers. That's coming up in our next episode of Colors. So as we go, we want to say thank you to some people. Hillary Howard, Mike Jakaitis, Dimitri Sotis, Kara Boyd, Cortland Cox, Thedford Collins. Thanks to Ron Pemberton, Julia Ziegler, Joel Oxley, Kesha Smith, Gabriel Franco, Greg Strassel, Audrey Hansen, the WTOP social team, Guadalupe Correa Cabrera, Alfredo Corchado, Sean Anderson, Brennan Hazelton, Peggy Byer, Melissa Howell. For the music, thank you, Jesse Gallagher, Cosmic, and DJ Williams. And most of all, thank you for listening. And just remember, keep talking to each other. And just as important, keep listening to each other. You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.